All right, so today we're continuing with our series we've been doing called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. And all those words are chosen carefully. Uh, Less than these eight, and you wouldn't have the gospel. Although most gospel presentations uh, in modern times have considerably less than this. Um, Elements has to do with the basic ingredients. You know, if you uh, bake cookies, there are certain kinds of things you can't leave out if you want them to be cookies. (laughs) So... um, the titles are listed there. I'm not going to review much. I'm just give you about one line of review for each uh, essential. We've spent only one week on uh, the attributes of God, which is element number one. However, I want to just emphasize that you're we are you're usually dealing with two types of people, uh, to be very broad in general people who would not claim themselves to be Christians and people who would claim themselves to be Christians. And for quite different reasons, most people in in the world today and most people in America today, since most of us are doing most of our ministry and outreach in America, um, most people in both camps have different than a biblical view of God in their mind for different reasons and in different ways. So, of course, uh, if you're dealing with a polytheist or whatever, then obviously they don't have, uh, they have many gods, none of whom are omniscient or eternally existent or transcendent or, or any of those kinds of things. So uh, it's important that you know, know some things about that. If you're going to reach people who would flat out say, uh, you know, uh, as John Bradbury, in a short amount of time, has become one of my best friends. I just love him to death. And uh, when he first came here, he said, well, I don't believe in God. I said, okay, we start. Let's start there. <laughs> you know, and a uh, good place to start. I didn't believe in God when I became a Christian either. So uh, we're going you know, to start it on the same place. And uh, so um, the, you know, uh, the but Christians today, almost all commentators, whatever they, whatever uh, mainstream of Christian thought uh, they're coming from, would would agree that we have kind of a man-centered Christianity in modern times, with a God that's less than sovereign or all-knowing or that important. Frankly, the bottom line gets down to not to be prioritized. Uh, it, you know, we have a kind of Christianity that it's okay to have idols. It's okay that you have God. Little, like I believe in God, I'm fine. But you know, any any real reading of the Bible, the you know, the first commandments, "Thou shalt have no other gods besides me or before me, instead of me." It means, uh, you know. If you look all through the New Testament, whenever the gospel was preached, it talks about how they turned from idols to serve a living and true God. Uh, There's a book that I'm considering adding to our intermediate list called Idols for Destruction by Schlossberg. Have you read that one? All right. So, um, you know, uh, so that's, that's enough about, so what I'm saying is this. You can't, uh, like, like Paul in Athens we highlighted, you can't start with, uh, like Peter did, with an, you're not starting with an audience 
that already believes in the God of the Bible, that already believes that Scripture is God's infallible word, that already believes in the Ten Commandments, etc. That God's a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Most people are not there. And so most gospel presentations that have been popular, especially in the 1950s to, to now, are really kind of designed for people who already have that foundation. They're mostly good for calling sort of a backslidden Christian back to Christ, but not so much someone who wouldn't consider themselves a Christian or, uh, and, um, or those who would consider themselves Christians but really don't realize how much they don't know, which has uh, become an epidemic, of course. So secondly, we looked at man, three characteristics. That's very important that you can understand all of them. First of all, the man is created in God's image. Now, the implications of that have to do with why uh, we have a couple people in our church that work at the Miami Valley Women's Center and why uh, we spend uh, buku hours tutoring and mentoring uh, kids from, from terrible families who can't read at all or talk and are five grades behind because, because that one individual is worth it. Because they're made in the image of God. And uh, the second thing we looked at is, is purpose. Almost all gospel presentations uh, have to do with conversion, but not calling. And one of the, if you, you look at anyone with a lot of troubles and they have not come to understand their calling in such a way that it's become a passion for them to pursue it. Hope you, I, I paused to let you think on that one. Plus, I had a sip of coffee. Uh, <laughs> no, think on that. Uh, if you go through the New Testament, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Levi, jump ahead to Paul, all of them were called at the time they met Christ. They weren't just uh, receiving five theological principles or something like this. They were called into a total life commitment that was going to require that they laid down everything about their old life. They would no longer seek to save their soul life, their suke, their, their affections, their will, their desires. Their, they would be redirected to a new Lord and a new master for a new purpose. And that purpose is cosmic and global. I remember a young man that only probably Catherine and who's downstairs, and Larry will even re remember, named John Rogers in uh, Bowling Green. And he came to a campus ministry meeting, uh, the first one of the year. So usually when people come to the first one of the year, uh, oh, yeah, Lisa will remember John probably, right? So, um, and he, uh, normally when someone comes to the first one of the year, they probably were a Christian in high school. And so if I asked him, he goes, no, I, I've never been to church. I don't know anything about God. I he said, you know, I had this light appear in my room and said, John, I'm God, and I want you to follow me and serve people. <laughs> so I saw your poster. I figured 
this might be a place I could come to learn about God. <laughs> so, so we began to have Bible studies, and uh, but he was just so open that like on on our first walk around, we walked around campus one night till two, or, I don't know, two or three hours till late into the evening, and and by the end of it, I was talking to him about John, Jesus is drafting you into God's cosmic purpose for the universe, <laughs> and he's like, wow, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, that's how the. If you don't have a little of that wow going on, I would encourage you to cry out to God for a more complete conversion. You've got to have a purpose that that becomes your passion. And the first passion has to be to know him and the power of his resurrection and to have all goals, vocationally, ministry, everything subordinated to the love of him. Well, then we started on the Ten Commandments last week, and Roman or I'm sorry, Roman numeral two, A and B is what we got through. We talked about where to find the Ten Commandments. Beth read them into the record for us, Exodus twenty one through seventeen, and they are repeated in Deuteronomy five. That's what Deuteronomy means, the second giving of the law. And then we looked at the fact that all the laws have case laws that back them up. Uh, and if you're if you've ever studied any constitutional history or legal history, you know a little bit about case laws, probably. Unfortunately, most modern uh, English translations translate those as statutes and ordinances, and therefore most English-speaking people miss the point of them. But they're the case laws. They're how the Ten Commandments were to be applied in society, in the family, in life. So we gave examples from both the Old Testament and the New of case laws. Thirdly, our summaries of the law, and I really should have a point D, which I'll go to and come back to see. Point D is simply this. Every single one of the Ten Commandments is repeated in both covenants buku number of times. If you want to try to count them, choose one and go through them, but you'll be into three digits at least. In other words, you'll, you'll be way above 100 uh, if you take any one of the Ten Commandments and look for them being repeated in just the New Testament alone in various forms, things that mean the same thing. So point C is this. There are summaries of the Ten Commandments the most, uh, in both, both the Old Testament and New Testament that really get down to love God and love your neighbor. And the commandments are giving definition to what that means. Today, we have this kind of nebulous, oh yeah, I believe in God. I remember uh, when I first was coming to Christ, I had a roommate, KT was his name. And and, uh, he was really big on, you know, unfortunately, I was not a Christian. So we smoked a lot of pot together every day. And and he, uh, he was from a different culture, so uh, he, he was a lot more bold than I was about a lot of other things. I, uh, and, you know, he's basically sleeping with different women every night and, and uh, all that kind of stuff. And I, and I was uh, a little amazed. And, uh, you know, I was just going just away from home for the first time. And, um, and, but he's like, oh, man, I love that Jesus rap. When I, <laughs> you know, when I talked to him about the Lord, I love that Jesus rap. He said, I remember when the man came around. And, uh, well, I, I can't repeat some of the words he used, but, uh, well, you can trans. I remember when the man came around and we was all holding hands and talking in tongues and, uh, we'll say golly, but he said, 
you know. Uh, <laughs> he let out some superlatives and uh, told me how much he loved that Jesus rap. You know, James 2.19, you believe in God, you do well. Big deal. So do the demons. They believe in God better, more than you do, actually. They believe in God enough to base their whole existence on it. Do we? So uh, the summaries of the law get down to what it really means to love God. And that's, that's what uh, we're going to talk about antinomianism a little today and a lot next week. And uh, that's really, uh, when, when you begin to understand how that came into the church in the 1890s, how it took over the church by the 1920s, and what it means and what the implications of it'll give you great understanding of how the church got to be where the church is today. You know, when my kids were little, we uh, had left the ministry, so we tried uh, a couple different, very well-recommended, very very good evangelical churches that had lots of programs and so forth and everything, and we ended up having to start this church partly because those churches were terrible for our kids. Because, you know, they went to the youth group and learned how to smoke weed and, and get, get drunk and, uh, and, uh, and uh, talk negative about authority and whatever else. But they, were, but they weren't coming to know Jesus. And so, um, so we went a different direction. But um, so, again, these summaries give definition, and we need this is the point I'm trying to make. You you need some you need to know what does it really mean to love God. You know John 15 Jesus said he who has my commandments and keeps them he it is who loves me. That's how you know. All right, let's look at Matthew 22:34 through 40. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, that's a good thing. They gathered themselves together. Uh, roughly the Pharisees are for the most part from the mindsets of modern-day uh, fundamentalism, uh, and the Sadducees are, for the most part, from the modern uh, you know, mindsets of modern-day mainstream or liberal Protestantism and liberal Catholicism as well. So when the did Jesus silence the Sadducees, uh, one of them, a lawyer, that is the, one of the Pharisees, who is a lawyer that is an expert in the Mosaic Law, asked him a question, testing him, as they always were. They're looking for something they could get him on. Teacher, which of the is the great commandment in the law? You know, because they're trying to, they're, they want to accuse him of being reductionist and uh, holding up one command because the law very, is very clear that if you break or violate the law at one point, you break it at all points. That's what they, they were trying to get some reason to accuse him. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, I didn't supply the caps. That's from the New American Standard Bible that puts quotes from the Old Testament in caps. So what you need to see is he's actually quoting out of Deuteronomy. The summaries of the law are in the Old Testament and the New. And he's saying that the first five commandments have to do with they mean what they mean is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And that, you know, as I always joke about, when you study the Greek on that three-letter word all, and you compare it in various translations and so forth, all means all. <laughs> Every one of them. All, you, all your soul, not 80% of your soul. 
not 80% of your mind. You know, uh, to borrow a phrase from an from a excellent organization at times, um, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. And that's what we're doing. And that's what modern Christianity has become. Uh, I would encourage you to consider reading the book, Love God with All Your Mind, by J.P. Moreland, who was a uh, friend of Dallas Willard, and it was actually part of a series of books they did together, and uh, et cetera. So then he goes on to say, this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Anybody remember the golden rule? This is the great and foremost commandment. Um, or the second is your, uh, one of these two, on, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. You know, like the prophets aren't about prophecy and uh, watching TV shows where they try to predict, uh, you know, what the Russian helicopters mean in the book of Revelation or some nonsense. The, the, pro, the prophets called Israel back to faithfulness to their covenant God and his covenant law given to them when he made covenant with them in Exodus 19 on Mount Sinai and defined for them as he continued to make covenant with them in Exodus 20 with the giving of the commandments. And uh, when he says in Exodus 19 that if you will indeed obey my law, then you shall be to me my special treasure. I'll put great favor on you. And you shall... uh, be my holy people in a, in, a, in a kingdom of priests. Every one of you will become a kingdom of priests. And this is actually a foreshadowing because Peter quotes that verbatim in 1 Peter 9 to the church. You are a kingdom of priests. Uh, it can actually be translated your kings and priests. You are of a royal bloodline in Christ. And uh, you need to act like it. The biblical doctrine of kings, remember when Nathan the prophet stuck his finger in David's faith and said, thou art the man? Every other kingdom in the history of the world up till then, Nathan would have got his head chopped off as soon as he started lifting that finger. But in God's kingdom, no one is above God or his law. And Nathan was praised and and, and immortalized eternally in the scripture. And David had to submit to that he had broken the law of God. And because of his repentance, where Saul had remorse, he was called a man after God's heart. Because we all are lawbreakers. That's why we need to be rescued by a Savior. So, um, and it starts with, instead of blame shifting, excuse making, and rationalizing, it, it, it it, it starts with when God says, thou art the man, you say, that's right, guilty as charged, rescue me. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Romans 13 is another summary of this, and uh, notice the, the caps. So let's get into today's stuff for the next 25 minutes. Actually, we didn't cover that last week, so that was today's stuff as well. But let's get into Jesus and Paul on the purpose of the Ten Commandments. Then next week, we're going to get into a, what's a couple big words, but I'll define them, and you'll understand them by the time we're done, called antinomianism and theonomy. And we're going to look at the present New Testament purposes of the law. You need the law of God. When I was doing this, I was actually thinking of my 
a good buddy who I'm three days older than, uh, Pastor Wayne Meckner. And uh, we've uh, known each other since 1975, about the same time I met Larry. And uh, uh, whenever I talk to Wayne about uh, encouraging kids to memorize the Ten Commandments, he always has to make sure he throws in, make sure they don't do the shortened version, but they get the whole word for word. <laughs> you know, and I said, okay, that's a good point. I'll be glad if they memorize one of them. But uh, <laughs> no. uh, so... That's uh, Jesus and Paul on the Ten Commandments. Now, the first thing is, let's look at Jesus here. Jesus came not to abolish, but to fulfill and empower us to do the law. This is important. Matthew 5, let's make sure we understand the content. Matthew, uh, first of all, was Levi the tax gatherer, traitor, turned the greatest love lover of God's of Israel ever writing the most important book to the Israelites ever, helping them see that they had crucified the Messiah, the Christos they were waiting for, God and them himself, and that, that God had therefore fulfilled all of what the prophets said and had taken the kingdom away from them and transferred it to a kingdom uh, of his beloved son and a people who would produce the fruit thereof, and that armies were going to surround Jerusalem within a generation and destroy it all. And the Sermon on the Mount is the beginning teaching of what it means to be part of this new nation, these followers of Jesus Christ. It's the most, uh, it's the most um, central teaching of what it means to be a disciple. Uh, there's you know, a concept in theology called the locus classicus, and you start with any idea in Scripture, you start with what is the most important statement in Scripture, and Matthew 5 through 7 is the most important section of Scripture on what it means to be a Christ follower. Simple as that. He, uh, it's very clear that the multitudes were coming to him, but he went up on a mountain and his disciples came to them and he began to teach his disciples. He didn't, this is not for the masses. It is, but it, it, it's for a call to the masses to become the disciples. So in that context, he says this very important thing. Uh, he anticipates that people will twist his ministry of correcting the Pharisees and Sadducees' misuse of the law and that they'll begin to think uh, that he came to abolish the law. And so he wants to say, we ain't taking any of that blankety blank nonsense right now. We're, we're shutting that down right at the beginning. Don't even begin to think about that, that, I, that my, my confrontations with the Sadducees and the Pharisees about their wrong use of my word has anything to do with my negating the law of Moses. So he says, do not think that I came to abolish the law. Don't even think about it. East, I wish I was East Coast. Don't, don't even think about it or whatever. I can't say. Uh, and to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. I wish I'd taken some time to do the Greek word for us there, but it means to bring them to pass, to empower that you, to enable you to do them. Our slogan, acceptance as you are, empowerment to grow. What we've, we've tried to turn Christianity into acceptance as you are and leave you as you are. And that is most unloving. 
I want to I provide for you the tools to change, the choose tools to have the abundant life that most Christians aren't entering into. That's what Jesus is saying. I came to give you the power to do the law. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, don't think that's happened yet, not the smallest letter or stroke uh, shall pass from the law until it's all accomplished. Remember, he's, we're going to talk about the verse, he, it is finished today. Until it's fino, done, telos, the end, until it's all happened. Whoever then annuls or makes void one of the least of these commandments. Now, we're going to look at all these words in Paul's uh, writing in Greek in more detail as we go, but uh, keep, keep your mind about accomplished there and about annulled and about fulfilled. Keep your mind thinking about those words. Whoever then annuls or makes or nullifies or makes void one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now that should scare the heck out of modern day so-called Bible-believing Christianity. Because they're teaching, be when you receive Christ, that when you're in the Spirit, you don't need to do the law. And he's pronouncing a judgment or sanctions, if you understand the eight aspects of all covenants, that there will be a sanction against anyone who teaches people to abrogate the law. Now, again, Jesus then goes on and in, in to, to back up his point in the rest of Matthew 5 by giving us case laws. You heard you weren't supposed to meet murder. Again, I wish I could do East Coast. Don't even think about it or forget about it or whatever. But, uh, you know, no, you can't even be angry with your brother. Hey, can some uh, get someone to explain to her that we have two nurseries she can choose from and so forth? Kind of help her know the program there a little bit. Well, it's probably too late for a guy to go back there now. Never. So hopefully we all explain that to her. It's good to have some visitors. Um, so um, then Jesus goes on to give us case laws. You know, you, I, you, you heard you're not supposed to murder. Like, don't even think about getting some interpretation of that, that, well, I didn't kill anybody. I, I might just beat a few people up or I had... I became abusive emotionally or mentally, or I'm a, I've got anger management problems. He, he's saying, he's saying you can't diminish the capacity of any human being, or you're a murderer in your heart. He says, you've heard you weren't supposed to commit adultery. We did a bunch of case laws about that out of Leviticus 18 yet last week. But I'm telling you, don't even have that lust in your heart. It ain't about you. It's about loving God. And it ain't about dehumanizing anyone or using anyone. And so forth. And then he goes on to end his discussion of case laws. He gives us a few. And then he ends this discussion of case laws because those representative samples was saying, uh, unless your righteousness surpasses those of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. 
And that's supposed to punch you right between the eyes and knock you out and go, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And the disciples in a later place said, you know, if the kingdom's like this, then who can be saved? You're supposed to go, wow, how could I ever be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect? And Jesus says, with men, it's impossible, but not with God, all things are possible. You've got to die to yourself and and exchange your life for a new life. And that new life is a perfect life. And you got to live out of the power of his resurrection and by the power of his spirit and by the power of his law. And and he's going to write his law upon your heart and upon your mind. And that's why you always get people who are saying, well, is Jesus saying, uh, you know, when he says, cut your hand off, are we supposed to cut our hand off? That misses the whole point. The point is no sin comes out of your hand or it comes out of your heart. And he's saying, you've got to have a heart transplant that only the Spirit of God can do. You've got to be born again. You've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You've got to learn. You've got to surrender to my Lordship and become a God adorer. And it has nothing to do with whether you don't have hair on your head anymore or or whether you have 20-20 vision or or whether your hands are strong or weak or whatever. It has everything to do with a heart transplant. And he's not talking about a physical heart transplant. He's talking about a spiritual heart transplant that works its way out into all of your life. That's the point. Without that radical surgery of coming to Christ, the outward life can't be changed. So don't even think like, if I got a haircut, I'll be more holy or any nonsense like that. So um, let's move on to Paul. Got 15 minutes to do Paul. Paul, tutor, to uh, flip over to the backside. Paul's two. Basically, view is the tutor to lead us to Christ. We'll start with Galatians 3.24, which is Paul's most important verse on the purpose of the law. So there's really kind of two locus classicuses in the New Testament about the importance of the law. The law has become our tutor. A lot of us know about tutoring in this church. To lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. That's the purpose. The law is on tablets of stone, is, to, is to, uh, to flatter the sin in you so you can say, how could I ever stop lusting? How could I ever stop having anger management problems? How could I ever stop being a control freak and actually make God the Lord instead of me the Lord? You can't. So receive Christ in repentance and receive a new life. Exchange your life for his. That's our whole message on, on the podcast of eight exchanges made at Easter. You, you got the just died for the unjust. You got to trade places. And you've got to be able to say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Some of you guys take that so seriously. I called Terry the other day and he goes, I said, Terry. And he goes, I'm sorry, Terry doesn't live here anymore. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. <laughs> Leave a message at the tone. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, in the, the life that I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. 
That's your only hope. I wish I could tell you, go home and try harder. <laughs> but uh, that will probably not last till you get out the door. <laughs> Certainly not till you get out of the parking lot. And uh, so you might as well trade in your old model for his new model. Don't just take a little remodeling. You need a, you need a complete heart transplant. Romans 3.31, Paul said, this is very important. Do we then nullify the law through faith? This is what has become modern evangelicalism, a nullification of the law through faith or through alleged faith. But he's saying, may it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now, uh, before I get into the words, I'm going to give us the Greek for nullify and establish. But I will first want to give you some alternate translations. The, the New American Standard says nullify the law. ESV says overthrow the law. King James says do we make void the law, or New King James, I should say. Uh, and then, do, no, on the contrary, we establish it as the New American Standard and the New King James, or the ESV as we uphold it. Okay, now, before we even get into that, I want to look at the phrase, may it never be. Think back to, to what we were saying uh, about when Jesus, um, Jesus is talking about the law, when he says, do not think that I came to abolish. So they're, they're, what they're both saying is they're trying to get you, slap your face a little bit in, in the, you know, with words, not physically, and uh, say, what? You know, um, are you kidding me? What? That, you know, Paul is, you know, trying to say, uh, I rehearsed this all in my study this morning. I wish I, wish I could do it better, but uh, I'm sort of getting my train of thought that I had rehearsed. I should have put some notes for myself. But uh, it's just this, you know, may it never be is like very, very strong statement. He's basically saying like, you, are you kidding me? What, what are you thinking about? Like, this is not in, no, you can't, you, it's not in touch or throughout. Don't even think about it. Don't go there. This, it's, this is the height of absurdity. That's what he's trying to say. It, like he's, he's kind of doing like you see in the Bible a lot of times where they rip their, their uh, clothes. Paul's kind of saying like, <laughs> what? No, if, if we have some wrong interpretation of faith that it nullifies the law, we've missed the whole boat here. So, the nullify is the word kata argeo, and it means nullify, overthrow, to make entirely idle or useless, literally or figuratively, to abolish, cease, destroy, do away with, become of none effect, fail, lose, uh, loose or untie, bring to naught, put away, put down, vanish away, make or render null and void. That's why... One translation says overthrow, another make, make void, another says nullify. It's a strong word, and one English word isn't good enough for it. Then he says, no, on, this, the, uh, on the contrary, we histami. Uh, that means to stand, and it's used in various applications, literally or figuratively, throughout the New Testament, but it means to dwell in, abide, appoint, bring to pass, continue, make covenant with, 
uh, hold up or uphold, to present, to set up. It means we make put it in bedrock. We make it immovable. We establish it. It uh, really is um, similar to, um, you know, and if you watch playoffs, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for playoffs. I, I don't like the regular season. It takes too long. But <laughs> when they get to the playoffs, then whatever, NBA, uh, NCAA especially, uh, uh, not so much football, but I, a little bit, uh, baseball. But what I like is, like, if any team really has the right focus for their winning idolatry or whatever, after they uh, after they win one series, they go, like, we that's nothing. We got work to finish here. And it's the people who uh, kind of are happy to have gotten there, they go down quick. It's the people who really under keep focused that we got to finish this. And what Paul is saying is that true faith causes the law to be lived out in Christian community. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us. Theology becomes incarnational. Now, Jesus uses this same word in this passage, and I I thought it would help illustrate this. He says, uh, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself can histame, can stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, his, he is divided against himself. Well, it has a lot to do with the church uh, since 1054 AD, and especially since the 1500s. How then can his kingdom histame? Now, with regard to this idea about law, what we're going to study next week in more detail called antinomianism was introduced to Christianity. Uh, now, there were some in ancient, it wasn't introduced, it's in the heart of man and his fallenness, but it became a movement in the 1890s. By the 1920s, it had swept all evangelical conservative Protestantism. And since that time, we have stood in this, we have presided over this culture and watched the Ten Commandments taken out of every venue uh, in our society. We have watched, even in the church, God become very little, and being a God follower, just a choice among choices and all kinds of diminishing like that. We have watched the break, the, the breakdown of the family. We have watched uh, the sexual revolution and we have come to a place where anything goes, as John so eloquently talked about last week. By the way, if you missed his sermon last week, it's available online on the podcast. Just go under Sunday Sermons, and you really need to hear it several times. We, so, you know, you need to understand that in historical perspective, because we're not going to change all this by voting for a better congressman or electing the right guy as president. And frankly, that's why I don't really give a darn about it. We've got to first and foremost start restoring the church and restoring the content of the church. That's what Grace Christian Fellowship's about. And there is no hope for future generations of Western civilization if we don't radically turn this thing around and i'd rather be small in and despised and 
and misunderstood and everything else than to be as compromised as what the church has become. I, we can't go there, brothers and sisters. We just can't. And one of the issues is once you would introduce a, a view of the law that it's not God's word, it's not the embodiment of truth, as Paul calls it in Romans 3, or Romans 2, I should say. Once you begin to embrace antinomianism, it's a fast downhill decline. The commandments started to be taken out of public venues starting in 1963. The, the Supreme Court cases that allowed that were in the 50s. Uh, the, but the worldview that allowed that, and what we need to understand is, I don't care what the evolutionists are saying, and I don't care what the modern higher critics are saying, because the Bible makes it clear that it's time for a judgment to begin with the house of God, and we are the city set on a hill, and we have to become the light of the world. People that are in a dark, dark, dark room when they wake up are looking for a light. And if we had the light, they'd come asking for the light instead of we being a mockery on Fox News and CNN and everything else. And we're not going to change this by some political action. We have to build covenant-membered communities where being a covenant member means that your lifestyle reflects that you're a follower of Jesus Christ in every way, shape, and form. How you do your taxes, how you do your finances, how you love your wife, how you raise your kids, uh, it, how you do business. You can ask some of the Christian businessmen in our church and so forth, but most Christian businessmen I know, actually, when someone says, well, I'm a Christian, that they... They're, they're actually kind of turned off at first thinking, oh, my God, <laughs> they're probably a bad worker. That, that can't be. You need to work as unto the Lord and not for the pleasing men, but you need to be the best worker that you can be wherever you are. And you need to have a work ethic. You need to have Bradbury lay hands on your work ethic. <laughs> so... Really, and any other issue you might want to say, the sexual revolution started with we want to do what we want to do, how we want to do it, when we want to do it, with whomever we want to do it, and so forth. And I, you know, my brother, who was a leading advocate of it, and I won't go too far there, but let's just say certain publications and the, the encyclopedia of sex and so forth. What they're advocating is if you want to have sex with dogs, donkeys, and telephone poles, you should be free to do it. And if you want to marry a telephone pole, let's marry them. Let's, let's have legalized weddings between donkeys and people. Because they want their, no one will stop this until it gets there. That's where we're headed. And I, I won't have to live that long to be made a prophet. Well, it's, oh boy, I got to try to finish this. Uh, Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Now, that's a different Greek word, atheteo, and uh, the King James translates it eight times as despise the grace of God, or reject, or frustrate, or disannul, or cast off. Strong's definition is to do away with, to set aside, disregard, to thwart the efficacy of a thing, that is the effectiveness of a thing, to nullify, to make void, to frustrate, to reject, to refuse, to slight. 
I got to avoid politics, but we're going to see the word nullification become a big deal in American politics in the next generation. There's just going to be individuals, families, churches, and states that say flat out, we cannot do what the federal government is saying anymore. And what was called nullification in, in the 1830s to 1860s is going to come back big time over the next generation. And I won't have to live very long to be made a profit on that either. Romans 7.13 says, Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. What are you, are you kidding me? Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin. That's the purpose of the law, by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful because sin has this way of dressing up. You know, like uh, strip clubs are called gentlemen's clubs. <laughs> and I've ne I doubt there's any gentleman even in the parking lot. You know, sin has this way of hardening in our hearts so that we don't see it. And we, we all can see it in other people, but we've got to be able to see it in ourselves. That's when salvation starts to happen. Everybody can be a crusader for this or that or whatever because we, man is, everyone's way is right in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. And the law of God will help you see I I'm not able to judge anyone else in a condemnation sense. Doesn't mean I'm not able to speak truth, but I cannot condemn anyone else because I need to be rescued. And what I can tell them is I've been rescued, I'm being rescued, and I'll continue to be rescued, and Jesus wants to rescue you too. Come join us. And if you don't aren't a sinner enough, then go to another church because this is a church for people who are messed up. If you're not messed up, don't come here. Go to there's lots of churches for people who aren't that messed up. If you if you if if salvation isn't something you're desperate about, then you're in the wrong place. You're in the wrong movie theater. <laughs> or whatever. Now, last verse here, because I'm past my time already. For Christ is the end or the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, this is a very important verse because everyone says, see, everyone doesn't know. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I'm trying not to get angry. I really do. I, I love you all. You know that. I love, love everyone. <laughs> Come on, loves. Join our crusade of love. I, <laughs> no, but... <laughs> It's not that it's the end in the sense that modern people have turned it into. See, the law is over with. Christ is the end of the law. It's the telos in Greek or the telos. It's the place where we get the uh, branch of theology and philosophy called teleology. It's the purpose of the law. It's the goal of the law. He's the finisher of the law. Jesus actually uses the same word on the cross when he says, it is telos. He actually uses the verb form. It is teleo. It is finished. And he's not saying it's terminated in a, in a sense that, you know, and again, you go back to these playoffs. At the end of every playoff, somebody is finished and someone is not finished. <laughs> 
And the one who's not finished is what Christ is talking about. Until they win the championship, then they say we're finished. That's what Christ is. Christ is the establishment of the law. No one could do it. In Exodus 19, when God makes covenant with Israel, sorry, John, but I got to speak this. Um, <laughs> when Christ makes covenant with Israel, they, uh, after he says, if you will indeed obey my voice and hearken to my commandments, then you shall be my special treasure and in, in, in my kingdom of priests and stuff for all the world belongs to me and you'll mediate my presence to the whole world. They said, everything you're saying will do. That was the end of Israel. They should have got on their faces and said, no, we could never do this. And God would have shown them grace right then because all the Old Testament saints were saved by grace, by faith in the fact that they could never perform the law and they were looking for the Messiah and they needed empowered by the Spirit. That's what Psalm 51 is saying. That's why people quote Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 all the time when they're leading people to Christ. They were written over about 800 years before Christ because all those who, were, who knew God always knew God by saying, we could never do this. It's impossible. Rescue us. Empower us. I need grace. And grace isn't just theoretical so that I have right standing. And they, they talk about imputed and imparted righteousness, and I think that's okay maybe for a discussion for our understanding. But if they are not inextricably intertwined, then you're Gnostic. That is not Christianity. That is modern Christianity, which is the re rebirth of Gnosticism and dualism and Neoplatonism. But real Christianity, the word becomes flesh. If you believe, the works will follow, James says. I'll show you my faith by my works. And these works don't come out of my effort. They come out of his effort. So when, you know, God uses you to do some great thing and someone says that was great, say thank you very much and let's thank God very much because if you knew what a worm I was, you'd be, you wouldn't come to this church. But uh, <laughs> you go to a church where they're more respectable. That's, that's what the theology means. That's what Jesus meant. It's finished. For those who are in Christ Jesus, it's not theoretically finished. His new life has come into you when you receive him. His new life is growing in you. And that new man will rise up and kill the old man. Jacob will kill Esau. Well, he'll at least steal his inheritance. <laughs> and he'll righteously do so. And you, uh, you, you know, you will be a new creature in Christ. And you will fulfill the law. And, and you will live like, like, I don't even want to think about being an anger management case anymore. Nor do I want to think about being a lust addict or whatever a kind of addict. And there are all the various kinds of lust there are for alcohol or whatever there kinds of lust there are. You know, that'd be a long list, etc. Uh, God has changed me. I'm a new creature in Christ. Second Corinthians five seventeen. If anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old things have passed away; new things have come. We're working toward having a water baptism later this summer because that's what water baptism means. Amen.